and welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hey everyone, I'm back. Aaron is an independent freelance developer currently working with a focus on .NET. His primary experience with functional programming is through this podcast, so his primary benefit to the podcast is making sure we cover topics so that a true novice can understand. And Kat Chuang. Hello. Kat is a designer working in a Haskell shop, which means a combination of about 20% Haskell and 80% CSS, both of which are composable languages. She has experience in UX research and organizes events for the New York Haskell user group over the past several years. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a polyglot programmer who, after years of disappointment in the languages I was using, discovered functional programming and never left. I focus on game development and teaching, utilizing FP concepts wherever I can. I make money by writing line of business web and desktop applications. All right, we love hearing from you, so please do keep that up. You can send us email at to contact at lambdacast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at lambdacast. And if you want to join in a more direct conversation, you can go over to fpchat.com. Uh, there's an auto sign up there, and you can join the LambdaCast channel. And finally, if you are feeling uh, that we're doing a good job and you want to support that, you can go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. And we do have some patrons to thank this episode. Chris Kreitcho, Tyler Harper, and George Webster. So we want to say thank you to all of you. Speaking of feedback, we do have a little bit. Space Popstar on Twitter uh, sent us the message. It says, I'm really surprised y'all didn't talk about the actual language around FP versus imperative. Like when you learn imperative stuff, function, interface, generic, and static are about as deep as the words go and they all come up daily. The word lambda or monad are so vacuous and math heavy, you can't even pretend like you can with the phrase abstract base class. So uh, what I think he's getting at here is that in the uh, sort of imperative OO world, a lot of terms get sort of invented, uh, like we can look at like all the design patterny stuff. And in the FP world, I'm pretty sure he's saying that that doesn't happen and that we have a different way of talking about terms. Does that seem, is that the way you interpret that? I don't, so for me coming in fresh, I think that what I've seen is more and, and this could be wrong, but it feels like there's a different set of vocabulary. And maybe you use a lot of the same words in functional, but there's a whole bunch of new words that get uh, get piled in there too. And so I'm not sure if it's that the words are actually more complicated or they're, the words are necessarily more difficult to understand or, or harder to fake, as he, as he put it, like harder to fake like you understand. Or if it's just, no, there's just some different vocabulary here that if you're coming in from imperative world is a little bit of a change. I would add to this that there's more of a scholarly or academic sort of um, feel to the functional programming communities. And um, so they tend to use bigger words to describe things at times. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that um, FP uses different words, certainly. Uh, and then Kat, you're saying they're not just different to be different, like they, they were invented independently. Uh, it's that they come from a different place and, and a right. mathematical basis. So there maybe is a uh, something behind the words. They're not just completely made up. Correct. I, I, guess they're, I guess they are totally made up, but then they're applied to a mathematical concept. So by the time we get them, we're not making them up. We're sort of borrowing them from math. And it certainly feels that way. And it feels like there's uh, a little bit more of a expectation of, of knowledge on the part of the FP learner. But I, I'm hesitant to say, and it sounds like I shouldn't be, hesitant to say that that's 
all FP's fault, but maybe there is like a little bit more. If that's Cat's experience too, then maybe there just is a bit more expectation of a learner to have the interest in putting the time to learn these terms. Is that a fair way of putting it? Well, would you say that it is um, like OO's fault that you are expected to learn patterns to participate in that community, in that world? Like, especially like the Java and the C-sharp world. Um, sure. I would say it is. It, it, I mean, there's there's kind of no way around that. To participate in certain programming paradigms, you have to understand how they work. And sort of the structures that have been identified and named. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no particular name reason that singleton needs to be called singleton or adapter or you know, mediator or things like that. Those are all, of course, uh, allusions to real life. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're based in things we are, are familiar with, where monoid and functor <laughs> do not have a particularly good connection to real life. So they seem very foreign and weird and hard, perhaps by comparison. Sure. And I, and I suppose you could potentially be using singletons and probably monoids or functors without actually realizing you're using them. But it's maybe less useful if you don't realize you're using them and you can't take part in the discussion about them. Right, you can't take part in the discussion. I do think that um, because there is perhaps more rigor in the terms that we use, like we're not just making them up and then connecting them to English kind of terms, Mm -hmm. but they're coming out of like established things that have papers and books written about them and in a history of knowledge around them. I I do agree that there is a little bit more of a barrier to entry. Well, let's say barrier entry. Let's say uh, there's a little bit more expected of, of someone coming into FP that they respect that, that, hey, you, you we're not just like, you know, psh, 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 you know, shooting off of the hip, making stuff up. Right. There's a there's a reason stuff works and stuff doesn't. And there's kind of one way to do it in many cases. And that's called math and constructing a proof but and, also, and, and properly working through it. Their academic words are very precise. And sometimes that makes it harder to grasp the subtleties between different words or concepts, because it's such a subtle thing coming in as an outsider. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you bring up a good point. Because these words are incredibly precise, they don't, they have so many more of them. Like in, uh, you know, uh, Space Popstar was bringing up that uh, in, in OO, you might be able to say, it's an abstract something, abstract base class or whatever. And that might actually be eight different things. Like if we say, Something's like a mediator. And it's like, okay, I, I kind of know what you mean. Or it's an adapter. Uh, I kind of know what you mean. Could you have four or five different implementations of that when it comes down to the actual code and the type signature? Probably. And we might consider those all the same thing. Whereas uh, a lot of the sort of the terms and the abstractions that get used in FP are extremely precise. So there is only one of that. And if I say blah, blah, blah is a you know functor, for example, tonight, uh, there's only one of those, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it means that any small variation of that won't be a functor. It'll be this other thing. So we end up with all these like little variations that seem, uh, I don't know, not uh, excessive, but it seems like overly unnecessarily specific sometimes from an outsider. You might say, like, why are you bothering to come up with all these little variations of something? And it's because we can't just use a bucket term for all of them. We have to use different terms because each one is precise. So in favor of imperative, it's not like they're just making stuff up, shooting from the hip. I don't think that's exactly a fair way to characterize it. They are trying intentionally to make friendly, easy to understand language, which is not necessarily like there's you're working with different goals. And so Haskell wins at being more precise because that's their goal. And imperative wins at being more friendly because that's their goal. If if we say friendly, it's just easy to understand. I kind of get what you're saying for it. That's why the, you know, the uh, abstractions get mapped to like English kind of terms, like things that feel more like real life. Sure. Sing- singleton just, just feels like, oh, okay, when you explain what that is, oh, that, that word makes perfect sense because 
that's like they sort of tried to make it easy to understand and very descriptive. But would you have known what a singleton is if no one had ever explained it to you? Or an adapter? Or a mediator? Or a factory? Probably an adapter. Um, and certainly, um, because of the word, I think that, I don't know, I think that, I think that yes, generally speaking, it's a little easier to grasp and remember the terms on the imperative side. Doesn't mean they're better, but I think that if you don't have the background, I, I would say often the, the Haskell stuff is coming from math. So mm-hmm. if the words are both totally new to you, then the imperative ones, because their goal is to be easy to understand, are usually, I'm usually quicker to pick them up, at least personally. Sure. And, and there's an argument even within the FP community that we should stop calling things monoids and we should call them appendables. Because if it's an appendable, then you know what it does. I don't want to get into that argument because like I said, I think FP's goal is to be precise. And so if you're trying to be precise, then then monoid is a, is a real thing. Although you could, if you chose to, um, so you talk about goals being different, you could say that I have a thing called an appendable and it's exactly this, and you could still retain your precision. It doesn't have to be called semi-group or monoid. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that the main point that Space Popstar is making is that in, in OO, the terms tend to be ideas and the sort of implementation is left up and is sort of a little vaguer. Yeah. Left more vague. Uh Whereas in the FP world, we tend to, at least in the static side of the FP world, we tend to get to very concrete, specific, I shouldn't say concrete, we get to very specific definitions of what something is, at which point there's no ambiguity. Like, it's exactly this thing. Um, and that's a, a degree of, that's a cultural thing, right? There's a degree of, like, rigor that doesn't usually get thrown at at a problem or, like, an idea in the OO imperative space. That, that's an interesting cultural uh, difference. So thank you for bringing that up. I think we handled that question very thoroughly. <laughs> yes. We were very precise. In our handling of that question? <laughs> yes, exactly. And thorough. All right. Our topic this week is functors, which I know uh, several people have, have let us know that they're looking forward to. So we're sort of climbing this uh, tower of common abstractions that starts with monoids and ends with monads. I mean, it doesn't end in monads, but the um, the intro set ends in monads. And I know people are excited to, to get there. Uh, all along the way, we have to we have to hit functors, or at least it's seems a good path to go through functors. So that's where we are this this episode. And uh, just as a little bit of a heads up, uh, we've, we're in audio format, so we are deficient in certain areas. We cannot show you type signatures or code or anything like that. This is probably the first episode where having a notepad or something that you could reference or, or write down might be a benefit to you. It might be necessary to at times stop and kind of write something out and, and think about it. We apologize in advance. There's no particularly good way we can think of to get around that other than having some some things in the show notes. Uh, so with that said, let us march ever forward into functors. And uh, I guess we, sh- we could start off with a really high level, not high level, a uh, an example to ground everyone. I-, I think at this point, everyone has run into the function map, either on uh, like an array in JavaScript or as part of a link in C-sharp, it's called select. Uh, we actually talked about map in a previous episode where we talked map, uh, filter, and fold, or as it's sometimes called, reduce. I think everyone has probably at this point run into that function. If they're listening to the episodes like all right in a row, they're sick of map at this point. We talk right, about we do map talk about so map often. Yes, so um, I think we have covered map. Right, and uh, and that's actually, uh, that's, that's what... Uh, that's what we're talking about. We're talking more about map. So I All guess, right. I guess we're done. <laughs> call, call it a day. Uh, it, it's slightly more uh, nuanced than that. Uh, we have been talking about map 
and a structure that has this map operation on it can be a functor. There's a couple little laws that we'll talk about, but for the most part, being able to do the map operation on some sort of structure makes you a functor. So it might sound like, okay, that seems really boring and uninteresting, uh, but it's that structure thing that makes this whole process really interesting. And you're not saying map is a functor. Can you run through the wording one more time? Being able to... Sure. So from a math... I was actually corrected on this at one point. From a mathematical perspective, uh, the the function, the operation that converts from one thing to another actually is the functor. But generally when we're talking about it in a programming language, we talk about how a certain data type is a functor because it has the map operation, the, the ability to perform a map on its contents. So let, let's get to a specific example. All you right, have a I'm list. Ready. You have a list, array, whatever. Okay. You use map to do some operation on each element in that collection, and you get back a new collection of the same type, whatever, you know, list or array, whatever you started with, where the values inside have been transformed by running them through your map, map operation. Does this sound pretty familiar? This is select in C-sharp. It's map in most languages, right? Mm-hmm. So the, if we were to give this a type signature, we'd say we have some function that's A to B. We have a collection of A, and we get back a collection of B. That might be the generic version. If we want something a little more specific, we have a list of A, or sorry, an A to B function, a list of A, we get back a list of B. And we do that by applying the A to B function to every element inside the list of A. When we get done, we have a whole bunch of Bs, and that becomes our list of B. I think you may have misspoken, or maybe I just misheard. It sounded like you said you have to have the same type, but you don't have to, right? A and B can be different types. Sorry, sorry. The A and the B can be, um, yes, that's correct, uh, but the structure has to stay the same. You don't start with a list of A and end up with a set of B, mm-hmm. or or a list of A and end up with a queue of B. The, sure. the structural or thing or stays whatever. the same. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the A and the B can be different on the two sides, but the structure part stays the same. Mm-hmm. So if we were to say that um, sort of in a generic sense, the sort of generic uh, signature for this would be a functor is any type that has the operation map, where map is takes a function from A to B and an F of A and produces an F of B. So in our example, F was list. Mm-hmm. But Fs could be many things, right? There's lots of things that can be mapped over. Lists are, of course, very uh, common, and, and we run to that all the time in languages like JavaScript and, and C Sharp and stuff and Ruby. Uh, but they can be, there's lots of different types. So the very generic version, you'll see a lot of like F of A, which means we should probably talk about what F of A means, because <laughs> that's like a really weird looking thing. Okay, so with this F of A thing, you've probably, if you're like from, you know, a traditional background, you've probably never seen that before. And my, the way I try to explain that to people is if you had, you can have like list of T, right? So you have a list that's generic, but what if the list itself could be generic? Like, so you could have, instead of like a list of T, you could have like a U of T, where both U and T are both polymorphic or generic at the same time. So that would mean that if you took in a something as a parameter that was like a U of T, any type that was parameterized by another type would be valid for that type. Could we maybe try to describe this with maybe more generic words? Um, So um, you mentioned parameterized, and I'm not quite sure what that means. With regards to like a list of T? 
So you said there's a generic T parameterized into a U, I think it oh, was? Oh, I had it the other way. So oh, I, oh. I had a list of T, and I said, what if the list wasn't a concrete type, but if that itself was generic? So you had a U of T. So instead of a list of T, you have a U of T. And do you mean like a list would be an example of a U? Yes, a list would be a valid thing to pick for the U. Whereas, so if we, if we say list of T, Really, any T is valid there, right? Any type we can come up with, we can totally shove into that T. Ah, T is a type. Right. Okay. So, so I'm sorry, I'm using like a C-sharp style uh, notation here, like list angle bracket T. Does that make sense? Okay. Or if you've seen that before, like a Java C-sharpy kind of syntax. Um, I think TypeScript and Flow use that same thing. Okay, so if we had that, we had list of T. What would happen if we made the list part generic and we said U of t so it's like a u angle bracket t ah so it could be a list it could be a tuple or any other structure uh well it could be a tuple because a tuple takes two type parameters and this would be anything that has one type parameter ah. so a q or a uh, i don't know like a future or like a, a list and we're kind of in, in a way are we kind of jumping through two hoops there dave because we have our, so let's say we have our list of T, right? And it could be, that means it could be a list of a string, or it could be a list of int, or mm-hmm. it could be a list of Booleans. It could be a list of any of these basic data types. It could be a list of a list, actually. And a U of right? T is kind of like, it could be a list of lists, sure. A U of T is kind of going both directions. So let's say we have our, our list of string, and instead of making both generic, let's say we have a U of string. And so we have like, we have a something of string is like the first step. In towards getting to a U of T. Does that is that clear? Uh, yeah, you, I don't actually think you can say U of string. Like you have a something um, of strings? You can't say that? Uh, I don't believe so. I think you have to say a, you have a something of something. It, maybe oh. it's possible. I've actually never tried that. Uh, I don't hmm. know a good use case for that. Okay, so Usually, that's not necessarily like this middle step in between uh, right. the, the genericness. Like yeah. you have to take that first genericness and then put the gener- other genericness at the front. And so it could yes. be a list or an array or... or um, or the dictionary doesn't really work because it does. That takes two types. Also. That takes two types, so right? Yeah, but but no. So in, in your example, cat of the tuple, we could have a we could have a tuple of a b, right? So a tuple that takes two types, or dictionary of a b, where a are the keys and b are the values, right? And so we could then have a like an f of a b. So that would be a generic f, some structure, right? That is parameterized by two things, a and b. And then a dictionary would fit that, and a tuple. Both of those would be valid there, but a list would not be valid, because the list only has one type parameter, not two type parameters. Okay, so we're not including nested type parameters, like a list of tuples or a list of dictionaries. Yeah, so if let's say we had a list of list of string. So in the case of list T, the T is allowed to be a list of string, but it's considered just a, uh, it's a concrete type at that point. Okay. Right, so it's just a single thing. It, that just fits the T. So you could have a F of AB where the A itself is a tuple of CD and the B is like a list of... Str- I mean, you could you can kind of get a little crazy with this. Uh, but from the perspective of we have two open type parameters, it would just be an F of AB and you get to pick whatever you want, whatever concrete things you want for both that A and that B. Okay. All right. I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean to get us off on a tangent there. No, no, that's. I think I think that helped explain it. Um, so this is necessarily like, if you're not used to this at all, you're kind of like, oh, this feels really weird. Like, I don't know why we'd ever want to do this. This is kind of awkward. Uh, but just know that when you when you see type signatures, especially, especially Haskell or PureScript or Elm type signatures, 
Um, actually, this won't, this is not true vellum. Um, this does happen in Scala, though. You'll see things like f of a. So f space a means a type f that is parameterized by another type a, where both are polymorphic. Now, that a is really allowed to be anything. The f is allowed to be anything that is itself parameterized by a type. So that's where our, that's where our list works, but our tuple doesn't. And sometimes it's a little confusing to me because I feel like f would be a function, and it's absolutely not a function here, right? This is Yes. In fact, f is often chosen chosen because of our topic tonight, which is functor. Oh, which all is right. an incredibly common usage for the f of a. Those tend to be functors uh, whenever they can. So that's why f kind of sticks around. But really, if we, we were picking something, it would be like s for structure or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a question. Can a functor be a function? Uh, can a functor be a function? Uh, a functor itself can't be a function because a function is parameterized by two things. So it it have to be an f of a b, okay, to be a function, uh, where functors are just f of a. Okay, therefore it's a structure, not a function. Uh, so functions themselves can count as structure. Right. Um, it's just a two type parameter structure, not a one type parameter structure. It's it's like a dictionary. It takes two things, not one thing. That's why it can't be a functor. At least, well, so I'm slightly getting ahead of myself. You, you can make dictionaries a functor. Uh, if you partially apply the first type, the input type, you can make it a functor on the on the second type. Okay, so maybe if we talk about math once more, like maybe algebra. Yeah, let's, let's go back to math. I, I completely agree. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> but, like x equals y. So maybe we learned that in algebra way back. Um, so is a functor the structure of x equals y it that there's two parts to this um the functor is just so the think of again think of functor as like a like an interface that you might implement right and it says hey to be a functor you must support this operation and the operation that we support is map okay and what map says is given a function from a to b i will take whatever is inside my structure i'm an f of a and i'm going to produce an f of b so if i'm a list of, of whatever. So my structure, the, the, and when we talk about structure, the, the thing that I think messes with people is this idea of structure. Like how could a, how could a list and a dictionary and a function all fulfill this? Like maybe a list, you can understand how that's kind of structure, but like a function being structure seems really weird. Often container, anything containery, it's pretty straightforward to think of that as structure. Mm -hmm. But what about a maybe? We've talked about maybes before. A maybe is a functor. A maybe can fulfill this idea of structure. So if you're talking about what is the interesting aspect of a list structure, is that there, there are zero or more elements. That's the defining like characteristic of what it means to be a list, right? The defining characteristic of what it means to be a maybe is you have zero or one element. That's what makes you a maybe, right? If you're a promise or a future, it means you have, you will have a, you will have a value at some point in the future. That's your structure. You're asynchronous. Right, you're you're going to eventually come back with value. If you're, uh, I don't know, if you're a uh, a queue, it means your structure is that you have a value and that uh, that you you get values one at a time and that uh, you can receive new values <laughs> and those are the last to be processed. Right, that, that there's the the you know the semantics of a queue. Right, that the first in is the first out. That's what makes you a queue. And all those are different structures. A list is different from a queue. Even though under the hood you might implement a queue with a list, they they mean different things to the user. 
Okay. Right, and they and they all enforce their structures. Uh, you can't get a maybe to just like stop being a maybe. It would be a very poor implementation if you get a maybe to act not like a maybe anymore. If it gave up that essential zero or one element aspect of itself. So the the structure sounds like it has some laws that it follows, where um, there is a certain order of things. So like a queue, first in, first out, it follows the law. Yeah, I wouldn't um, necessarily call them laws, like okay. in the mathematical sense of laws, but absolutely there are like rules that it puts on you that says, if you want to interact with me, this is how you do it. You can't, for example, if you use a promise and you expect it to have a value right away, you're going to be very disappointed. Like the, the rule for interacting with the promise is you are going to have to wait until there is a value available, and then we will go ahead and run your, your code. Is this um, type of rule, is it unique to functional programming or it, does it also happen for imperative structures? Yeah, yeah, to me, this is just any kind of data structure. It's okay. the thing that makes one data structure unique from another. Okay. Like It's kind of like we, we talked about having all these terms and, and we have these very specific terms. The specifics of what makes a queue different from a stack is this structure, the, the, the parts that we care about, mm -hmm. right? And under the hood, we don't really care. If you want to have a queue and a stack, like, uh, for example, in, in JavaScript, you can use push and pop, so you can treat it like a stack, but you can also use shift and unshift, so you can use it like a queue, and then you can also use, um, like, just an indexing operation, Oh, right? And okay. so you can use it like a list. So here's one data structure, but it can be viewed in three different ways because it supports the operations of all of them. So nothing about these structures says it can't do other things. It just must at least do these things. Ah, okay. Uh, so when we talk about these structures, um, they can get a lot more abstract, <laughs> which is kind of where people get into trouble when they start talking about things that sound very scary. And um, we won't really get into that stuff tonight, but in general, these structures can get very, if your type system supports them, and Haskell does, which is why you tend to see this kind of stuff in Haskell, or like Idris or, or Scala, uh, you, you tend to see very abstract structures, because people are trying to take the idea of, how do I slice and dice something that used to be a structure with a whole bunch of elements to it? And I start saying, well, I only really, sometimes I really only care about the index part of list. I don't care about the ordered part of list. So I'm going to make those two separate structures, each independent, and then there'll be some superstructure that that shares both those characteristics and they tend to like slice and slice and slice and so you can get some pretty um not specialized but um they care about some very vague sense of of a relationship between things <laughs> like or kind of ordered or kind of indexable uh, those are pretty concrete um anyways uh you, you'll, you'll see those if you dig deeply into the haskell ecosystem a little bit so let's get back to map okay Just back to map all right so map Map works for any of these structures, potentially, right? So some new structure that you come up with where you say, hey, I have a, I don't know, I have a state machine, right? I come up with this new new thing. It's called cat state machine, and that's the, my new data structure, and it's got these rules, and this is how it transitions from state to state, and maybe it's it's a different from Dave's state machine or Aaron's state machine. We've all got our own implementations of this. We can all be functors because we can all implement this map function. And what it says is, in that case, Dave's state machine is the F, Cat state machine is the F, Aaron state machine is the F. So we have three different Fs, but they all have the same shape. Given an A to B function and an F of A, so if I'm containing, if I'm a state machine that currently holds an int, and you give me a function that goes from int to string, I will give you back a state machine holding a string. Maybe we could use uh, concrete examples for these function type signatures. Um, I'd like, the simplest one I think is length. 
um, which is a nice, simple string to int. Because I think that's something that everyone's probably going to be familiar with. And it just gives you... So length, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, is going to return the number of characters in the string. So, for example, if you had Aaron, spelled A-A-R-O-N, it would return 5. Okay. So let's say we've got length. That is our A to B function. So in this case, string is A and int is B. So this will work with a type that implements functor. So a, we just call that, we just shortcut to calling that a functor, right? A type that's implemented this functor interface, that's, that's our functor. If we have a, let's say a maybe of string, we can run map on that maybe of string and get back a maybe of int. That makes sense? Um, no, no, not to me. Okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't quite sure which part is the functor, which part is the map. Am, am I supposed to think a functor works on a map? A map is what makes something a functor. Ah, okay. I mean, that's a little reductionist, but broadly speaking, map have, supporting the map operation is what makes you a functor. So if we if we had a list of uh, a list of strings, we could map length over that list of strings and get back a list of ints because it would run length on each one of the strings and the, each one of that those would produce an int and we'd get back a list of ints at the end. Probably people have done something kind of like this before. Maybe you do two upper or two lower or validate or, you know, you do some sort of function that you run on right, each but element. If you, but if you had a list of all the names of the people that were hosting the cast and you really wanted to have a list of what the length of all their names were, then you'd run these functions and get, oh, okay, well, I have my different numbers that represent how long each person's name is. And that's what you get back. You get this list of like integers rather than what you started with, which is a list of strings. Right. So if we wanted to know the total number of characters in all our names, we could map length over the list of cast member names and then sum that list. Now, when you have that chain of functions, um, is that composing? Is that the concept of composing? Uh, when you say that chain of functions. Um, so you have um, getting the length of each name and then the sum of the names. Oh, I see. Um, there would, uh, I guess you could compose those. You could compose the map of length with sum. And so you could do a composition. Uh, do we want to talk about composition like as a separate idea? I guess I want to go through this map example here okay, real quick, sure. and then we can talk about composition. So that one's, the, the list example is pretty straightforward. Yes. We take the exact same thing. So we have a maybe of string, like a name. So we have a maybe mm -hmm. of string, and then we run length over that, and we get back a maybe of int. Right. And the interesting thing here is, it it's almost looks like the exact same thing happened, right? The f of a turned into an f of b. Where in the first case, the f was a list, and in the second case, the f is a maybe. And in both cases, the A was a string and the B was an int. Right. Like we did the same kind of operation. Mm -hmm. But if you think of internally what happened there, the implementation that is behind both of those, very different things happened. So in the list example, we ran that function on every element in the list. Well, a maybe doesn't have a, a list of elements, right? There's not a whole bunch of elements to run it on. And in fact, there might not be any elements. So in the case of maybe... It didn't like do a for loop over all its elements. It had to go and check, do I have a value? If I do have a value, great. Go ahead and convert, you know, run my A through the A to B function and produce a B and then wrap it back up in a maybe. In the case of the nothing case, what do we do there? You just skip over that, right? We just skip over it, yeah. And we just hand you back a, a nothing, except now it's a nothing 
in the, of type maybe int instead of maybe string, but it's still a nothing. So basically, the nothing it, we just stay unchanged. Right. Or maybe we're, we went from maybe string to maybe int, but the nothing actual value didn't didn't really change at it's, all. They're both just nothings. Yeah. And so what's interesting there is that what we've done is we've detached the intention of what to do. Like, hey, here's this operation I want you to do. I want you to give me the length of the string. And we've completely detached that from kind of how to carry it out. That is under the control of the specific functor. And this is where you might start thinking like, oh, I've seen this before. This is like polymorphism in, in classes, right? This kind of can kind of feel a little bit like that. Um, and in fact, this kind of behavior gets back to this thing called type classes, which was originally called ad hoc polymorphism. So it is uh, solving the same problem as what like uh, interfaces on objects in an object-oriented language do. So if that feels kind of familiar, these are solving the same the same problem here. That we've got the, I want to do this function is independent of how do I carry that out. And in the list case, of course, it just internally does like a for loop kind of thing or a recursive, however it wants to carry that out. And it just uh, produces a new list. And in the maybe case, it has to look inside and say, well, which kind of value am I? Make, do some logic. If it was mm -hmm. a promise, what would it do? <laughs> right. It's, is, it, is it actually wait to evaluate the promise? Will it wait until right. the promise gets its value? Okay. Exactly. It would give you back a, it would take a promise of A and an A to B and give you back a promise of B. So you've got a promise of string and mm -hmm. a string to int, and it gives you back a promise of int. Now, that promise still could be unresolved, right? right. It hasn't It'll, resolved yet. But but when it resolves... Then then your promise resolves on the other end too. Well, your, the promise resolves, runs it through your, your map function, and then mm -hmm. gives you the int out instead of the string. So the promise is going gonna, gonna to still maintain its semantics. It's still a deferred operation. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of a... Uh, let's say like a, a channel or like a stream, like an infinite stream, right? You, you've opened up like a, a web socket kind of thing and you're just like getting values over it. Can that be a functor? Well, what, what are all the different types of functors that exist? Uh, I can't come up with a finite list. Oh, I definitely okay. don't have it. <laughs> I mean, like there's potentially there's infinite functors, right? Uh, we, we've mentioned a few list, maybe promise, uh, queue. Uh, I would put stream and channel on there. Uh, because those are it, it, those are sort of similar, but like let's just say like a WebSocket kind of thing, right? You're receiving values. You can map over that and go from a promise that produces strings. So let's say you're getting uh, strings in uh, over your in your in your in your stream. Yeah. In your stream, yeah, you're just getting strings. You know, the payload, the body of your of your uh, the message that comes across, and you might run that. You might your map function might be like some sort of parse on that, which might turn it from a a uh, stream of string to a stream of some kind of data structure because you've now parsed it. And and you don't have to remember that it was originally a stream of strings. You can just think of it as a stream of my structure that I care about, a stream of messages or something like that. Because your expectation is you're getting, and, and maybe you have a maybe wrapped around that too because you don't want to try and parse invalid data. But you're, you're correct. It would probably be a stream of maybe your data, your structure, like maybe message or something like that. Because if your parse can fail, which realistically it probably can fail, because you just get like weird malformed data. Uh, although you might you might pass along a, a message that's like malformed data message. There, there might be a default that you could pass along, so you don't need the maybe. It, it kind of depends on your data structure how you've got it in there. But that's a really powerful thing to say. Hey, I've got this sort of incoming thing of one type. 
and I'm just going to kind of convert it to another type because I don't I don't care about the strings I care about the ints or I don't care about the strings I care about the you know messages or something like that. So for me, um, and, I, and I, everyone's uh, uh, so for me, most of what we're saying makes sense, but I feel like we keep on popping in the word functor and it's like wait. We didn't actually explain what a functor was. And I think you did explain, but I just missed it or something. Sure. So a functor, as related to all this, is, is what? It's just, it just means that something can operate over map. Like if we have our A to B function and we have a list of it and we, and we and receive our U of A, like our, our whatever, our, our structures of A, then... Yeah, exactly. If you have the map, if you have that map function mm-hmm. that takes an A to B function and, and operates on U then you are a functor. Okay. You're a functor if that is a possibility. If you've implemented that interface. If the so the, the tech Okay. Yeah, the technical rules on how you do it in various languages is sort of language specific. Like in Haskell there's a thing called a type class, which is a lot like an interface, and you explicitly go and implement the interface for your type, saying, this is how my type is this thing. If you were in Clojure, for example, or uh, Elixir or so, or Erlang or something like that, mm-hmm. you would uh, have sort of a just an agreement, uh, like a contract that the thing that you're passing in um, has a map function, right? That you, or you're able to call map on this type. Right. So all these different languages do it different ways, but we're kind of talking about the same thing. Yes. It's like you Cross fulfilled on. the contract of I can do the map operation on my type, whatever whatever your type is. Okay. Uh, there are two laws that go with this which are pretty common sense laws. <laughs> if you map the identity function over the structure, you get back the exact same structure. So if you map identity over your list of strings, you get back the exact same list of strings. And we talked about identity in the past. So I will even cover it. I feel so confident as a functional <laughs> programming expert. An identity is a function that takes a value and returns value. Yep, exactly. It just takes an A, hands A right back. You're welcome, everyone. Yeah, there we go. Shut the books on that one. <laughs> okay, sorry. So that was rule one. That yeah. So if you map identity, uh, mapping identity over the structure is the same thing as just passing the structure through the identity function. It doesn't change the the you're value at all. The, you're getting the exact same thing back. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that you can compose uh, maps. So if you compose two functions, um, traditionally they're written uh, f and g. So if you compose f and g together, which is now would probably be a good time to talk about composition. Let me just finish this out and we'll talk about composition. If you compose f and g together and then map that composed function over your structure, it's the same thing as mapping f over your structure and then mapping g over your structure. So let's let's go specific here. If we had a function like length that was string to int and a function like is even, which is int to bool, we could take those two functions and we could run, and let's say we have a list, right? And uh, a list of strings. We run length over the list of strings, and now we got a bunch of ints. Now we got a list of ints. And then we could run, we could map is even over that list. And so all those uh, ints are now a list of strings. And so kind of what you're getting is like a list of oh, were all sorry. those strings even or odd as far as, or were they, or yeah, I guess yeah. were individually. they individually? Is, is yeah, fair. Yeah. 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 That's, that's so your we, end result, is you're saying, like, again, like if you did with the cast names, like Aaron, Dave, Cat, and what, what you get is... Um, false, false, false. Five, four, three. Oh, Dave, yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah, five, four, three. Exactly. So you get uh, false, true, false. It would kind of be like, that's the whole operation with just us three. Right, exactly. So you would do 
length, which is string to int. You get your intermediate list of uh, 543. Then you, you map is even over that list, and you get false, true, false. So you do two separate maps, and you get an intermediate map. Okay, and so... And so how does composing work into this? Okay, so if you compose, which we're about to talk about, <laughs> if you compose those two functions, length and then is even, and then run that composed function through, you're going to get the exact same result as mapping length first and then is even second. So you can map the composed function. Quick question. Is it length over the map of the list of names? No, it's the map over the strings that are inside the list. Okay. So the map the map is over the list, but we're doing getting the length of the strings. Okay. Not the length of the list. Because this works on a maybe. Right. Which doesn't have a concept of length. Okay. So we have a data structure, a list of strings, which is our names. And then we have a... And, and I apologize if the wording's not correct here. Um, we're mapping the list... No, the length function over the list of names to That's get... That's perfect. That's exactly correct. Okay. Yep. To get the integer value of the, the list of ints right mm -hmm. and then from there um the composition and i'm not sure how it would be written um syntactically in code but that would be composed with the is even which then would still be on the list structure and so when it returns it's the list of true no false true false so the the first time when we where we map length over the list to go from strings to ints, and then we map is even over the the intermediate list to go from ints to bool. There's no composition going on there. We're just running map two separate times. Okay. The way the composition comes in is um, we can compose list and is even together into a single function, and do only one pass of the map where it does both of those things in one step. So let's talk about composition. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Is there is there special syntax for that? For, in for some languages, okay. Elm, OCaml, uh, you know, any of those, like Haskell, PureScript, any of those uh, languages have a compose. If you're in like JavaScript, Ramda has a compose and Lodash has a compose. If you're in C Sharp, you can write one yourself. Uh, or in Java, you can write one yourself. As, if, as long as you have Lambdas, you can, you can do this yourself. Um, and the idea here is compose just takes two functions and glues them together. Think of them like Legos. So if you have a function that's uh, string to int, like length, and you have a function is even that's int to bool, we should be able to hook those together into a new function that goes from string all the way to bool. Because the output of the first function is the input to the second function. But you're not getting like a whole new function, right? You're not giving it a name like string is even. No, you absolutely are. Oh, you are getting a whole new function. You get a whole new function. And so you can just now call like string is even and you get string to bool without that intermediate, without you knowing the intermediate step is going on. Exactly. That is very, very handy. Now, often we, we glue functions together in a way where we do use them anonymously because we pass them in as an argument to something else. So it does, uh, fairly often you do leave them anonymous, but you can absolutely, they're a fully fledged function. They're not executed immediately or anything like that. So, uh, or applied immediately. Uh, they're just a standalone function. So if you were thinking this as, um, if you're writing this as a, in JavaScript, for example, right? You might say, I write a function that takes two arguments, which are my first and my second function, okay, first and second. And then that returns a function that takes arguments that then passes those arguments to first, takes the result to first, passes it into second, and returns the results of that. So it's, if you were to write this out, it'd be like second 
or they return second, open parens, first, open parens, args. Like whatever arguments were passed in. So by doing this, you can create a new function that takes arguments and then threads them through the first one into the second one and then back out. And if you've, if you've never seen this before, it sounds kind of weird. So to recap, um, it was that composition is a, it can be a function or it is a function. Definitely a function. Okay. And then a functor is a structure. Therefore, yes. a composition can work on a functor because it's a function on a structure. Well, uh, map requires a function as okay. one of its arguments. So map takes two things, the function and the structure to, to do the map operation on, ah, the f okay. of a. So that a to b function, um, in, our, in our case, um, we were doing two separate maps. One was length and one was is even. Yes. But if we had a compose operation, sometimes it's called pipe, or actually compose is usually right to left and pipe is left to right in terms of the way you have to arrange them. So in Haskell, for example, you'll see thing dot thing. And like uh, if we were writing this in Haskell, we would have to say is even dot length because the composition of the two starts on the right-hand side and we want to do length first and then is even. So we'd say is even dot length. Um, in like Elm or F sharp or whatever, they have like double arrows in either direction. And you could, you could say, you know, composed function equals uh, length arrow arrow like right facing arrow is even so you could you can compose from left to right um, or you could do the other way you could say compose function equals uh, is even left arrow left arrow length meaning the thing on the right happens first and then flows into the thing on the left usually people write left to right that, that generally tends to be the way it makes more sense if you go look up this is where i think you should absolutely go look up some code examples of the function composition uh, operator in different languages and you'll get a sense of of what that looks like. Um, but for our example here, we've got length and is even. We're going to compose them together to get a um, length is even. I think that's what you call it, Aaron? Yeah, length is even. So we have a new function called length is even. And then we're going to take that composed function and we're going to map that over our list, which is a list of strings, which will take us directly from list of strings to list of bools with no intermediate list events because the composed function did both steps in one go. And so going back to our old example where we talked about the, the three hosts' names. Mm -hmm. Last time we said we get a list and it's five, four, three, and then we get a uh, um, bools, which was false, true, false. This time, kind of what's happening is we pass it in and we get five, false, four, true, three, uh, false, and so we're kind of like getting that false. We're still getting false, true, false back, like as, but we're not going. We're not iterating over that list twice. Right. We'll never see the five four three. That's completely internal to yeah, the composed. Yeah, the function. five four three kind of happens behind the scenes, and so it, it goes five false, and we get the false back yes. as the first element of our list, and then four true, and we get the true back. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, this is this is. I would imagine this would be a lot easier if people are writing stuff down, maybe to follow. What's going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So composed function is is something that gets used a lot, and as you pointed out, while they are equivalent. Um, doing the two separate maps versus composing the two functions and doing the single map. While they are logically equivalent, they are not execution-wise equivalent. It is vastly better, in most cases, to do one map operation instead of two, right? Because two maps is two iterations of your list or your collection. When you say, and when you say they're equivalent, what you mean is is the return values you get are equivalent. Like, logically, Correct. they're equivalent. You'll in, end up with the same result. You get mm -hmm. the same result, but it doesn't mean it's the same efficiency. If you have a million elements in your list, I want to do that once, not twice. The, the iteration over it, the map operation. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And th- there are some languages, and even Haskell can do some fancy things where it recognizes two maps right after each other and then fuses them down into a single one by composing the functions. Uh, but generally speaking, this is something that's safe for you to do. This is one of these like little uh, rearrangements you can do. Okay. All right, why don't you give us the recap, Aaron? What is a functor? So, oh man, I feel like I got a lot of pressure here, guys. I'll try and get it right. A functor is, um, it means that something can be mapped over and uh, and give you like a new value back. So when you have uh, an f of a to b and you get a list of a, if you can, well, if you have that, then you have a functor. Like if you have a, if you have a, a function that takes a, takes an a and returns a b, and then you also get a structure containing a, you have a you have a functor there. Is that is that you correct? have a way to get you have a way to get to the f of b? Yeah. So the map operation is the the way you get from an f of a to an f of b. Okay. Through the, the functor, but the yeah. functor part is just means that like that exists. It means you have that map function. That's that's all it is. Yeah. It's okay. like an interface with one method. If this was like an OO language. Okay. So and it just so just the functor just means you have a structure that can be mapped over. Yes. Is that correct? You are a structure that can be mapped over. Exactly. Then, then you're a functor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true whether you have a fancy type system that can express functors or not. It's, mm-hmm. it, you're still a functor, like conceptually. So way back when an array was a functor, when like an array was the only structure available. I'm thinking like quick basic way back when. Um, but there was probably no map then. You probably didn't have a you didn't probably have a way to pass in an A to B function. Okay, so you need that. Okay, you need that ability to to do the select or to do the map. Yes, because well. just because okay. otherwise you're just a thing that's indexable. Yeah, right. Right. Because okay. you, there, you in quick basic. If the language doesn't support mapping over it, then you're not a functor because right. you, you need to be able to. You need to actually be able to do. Even if you could potentially do it, that doesn't count. It has to actually yeah. be possible in your language. Yeah, if your language doesn't have lambdas, uh, you don't have any functors. Okay. Oh, that's a good way to. <laughs> Because a lambda is a prerequisite, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of why we want to talk about those a few episodes ago, or I guess it's a fair amount of episodes ago now. Lambdas are so important um, because without them, almost all of these higher level of abstraction type things just don't exist at all. So that's kind of an argument against using quick basic then. Um, If there were a defining argument for a generation, that may in fact be it. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) The name of the episode, why we don't use quick basic. Okay, so um, things that... Uh, there, there are things that uh, seem like they should be functors that maybe uh, aren't functors. So uh, those come up occasionally. We kind of mentioned a tuple or a tuple. Uh, tuple is uh, you know an F of A, B, right? Because it has it holds two different things and they could be of different types. That technically it can be, in, at least in Haskell, that can be made a functor. Um, but the functor operation is always on the second thing, the B. So the functor, basically, the f of a kind of gets smushed down into a new f that only is parameterized by a b, and therefore you can only do the map operation on the, the right side of the of the tuple, which is why um, things like with either, the reason that the correct result needs to be on the right side <laughs> is because um, the way the type system works out, that's the only thing that you can map over. Oh, okay. With with map or f map in Haskell, uh, so there are ways to like coerce like a dictionary into being <laughs> mappable. It's because instead of it being an f of a b, you treat it as if it's just an f of b. The a kind. Of, there's a ways to like hide that a from the perspective of the the implementation of the type. 
Right, if you can implement overall the values in your dictionary or overall... Yeah, it only allows you to map over the values, exactly. Right. But you're saying, actually, only that right side, but you could you could potentially iterate overall the keys as well. Yes, and get yeah, your yeah. List of keys uh, that's your, an implementation your, your detail for... Keys. Yeah, okay, yeah. sorry. For, for Haskell, that's an implementation detail that you could flip your A, which one your A and your B represents, and mm-hmm. you, you just pick one. It's either going to be your keys or your values, and values tends to be more useful, so they, that's the one they picked. Yeah. Um, but there are things that are not mappable that you might think would be mappable. For example, if you think of like Redux, which is this like state container thing where you have like your state and you have these reducers and they take uh, an action or like a message. Elm works the same way. It takes like a message and the old state and it produces the new state. And so uh, that feels very much like a um, like an A to B kind of function, right? You have your F of A is like your state of A. And then your function goes from A to B, which is like your old state to your new state. And then you produce your F of B. So you doesn't, kind of like... It doesn't feel like that to me, actually, because a state is a state, isn't it? You're, you're converting from state to state. And so you're just... you have a, you're, If your state is a type, then you're going from so state let's, to state. So let's say your state... Let's say state is parameterized by the record that you're using, like the mm-hmm. actual struct that you're using. Okay. So you have a state of this structure uh, mm-hmm. because state is written by like the author, like the the language author or the library author. So mm-hmm. state already exists as a data structure. And mm-hmm. so you have, a, you're, you have a state, that would be your F in this case. You have a mm-hmm. state of A, and you have a function that goes from A to B, and that should be able to take your old state and produce a new state. Okay. Right? Because like a message comes in, and then you go from old state to new state. And it seems like that's kind of a functory kind of a thing, um, but it's not because functors allow you to go from A to B. And if you're doing something like Redux or Elm, it's very important that the shape of your state doesn't change. Like, you, you can't go from a state that looks like this to a state that looks like that. Like, you're not allowed to change the shape of your state because all kinds of stuff would break. So there are cases where you want to map over something. Another example of this might be string. Can string be a functor? Well, a string is a list of characters, so therefore, yes, because okay. a list can be a functor, a structure. You're right. A structure. String, at least in Haskell, is a, or it can even conceptually, screw Haskell, uh, just conceptually, a string is a list of characters, right? Great. So we have our list of characters, we have our A to B function, great. We start with a list of characters, and I apply the character to bool function. What do we get back? What does the character to bool function do? Doesn't matter, it's character to bool. So we start with a list of characters, mm-hmm. we run this function on it, what do we have now? A list of bools. Which is not a string. Ah, right. So map allows us to change the type of the thing inside the structure. And string says, no, no, no. I'm a list of characters. I'm only a list of characters. I'm never a list of bools. That's not a string. I'm not a list of ints. I'm not a list of anything else. I'm a list of characters. Yeah, so it's not a list of type. It's a list of characters specifically. Like that type is specific. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like what you were saying earlier. You want like a U of string. (laughs) And you can't Mm -hmm. do that, right? So... um, those are called monomorphic types, where you have like a containery thing, a structurey thing that only contains that has to stay the, a, the same type the whole time. It's not allowed to change types, and so there are implementations that are very much like map, where you can do map like things over monomorphic types, like okay. string, um, yeah. but they are not functor. Strictly speaking, they are very much in the spirit of functor, though. So you can kind of say, if you say, ah, we're going to map over our string, probably the person understands what you're talking about, right? But strictly speaking, we're not mapping. It's not a functor. 
because we're not allowed to change the A to a B. The A has to stay the same. Ah, uh, okay. So you need like a monomorphic map, which is given an A to A and an F of A, I give you back an F of A. Uh, therefore, polymorphic structures are things that can change types. Well, in this case specifically, we said it goes from an F of A to an F of B. Okay. So in the type signature, we're, we're allowing that A to change into a B via the, the mapping function. If we said, I have this I have this uh, thing called monomap or whatever uh, that takes an A to A function and an F of A and gives you back an F of A, it's still a polymorphic type. You can still pick anything for that type. So this wouldn't work for string, obviously, because string has to be a specific type, a list right. of character. Um, but it would work for other types that are that need to be the same thing the whole way through, like the Redux state or ah, the Elm okay. state. That needs to be a certain shape. And we want to run this map kind of function on it, but it's really important that if we started with an A, we end up with an A. It could be a different A. That's okay. But it, but it really needs to, the shape of it, the, the type has to stay the same. Okay. So that would be like two upper or two lower where it's still mm -hmm. the same string. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a different string, but it's still a string. Got it. Yep. That would be totally valid. Okay. Ready to move on? All right. We have two little tiny things to cover and then we're done. The first one is called a bifunctor, which is almost like a functor, except that it operates with one extra type parameter. So we said we have an f of a before. Now we have an f that's parameterized by two things. So this would be our example from before of our dictionary, our either, our tuple. Those are all examples of a type with two type parameters. Mm -hmm. And so what a bifunctor does is instead of it saying, you know what, you're going to operate on the rightmost of those two type parameters, because we only have one function, right? <laughs> we got to pick one of the two. Instead, with a bifunctor, you provide two functions. And it operates one function on the first type parameter and the second function on the second type parameter. So the typical type signature is I have an A to B and a C to D. I have two separate functions. And then I have an F of AC. Those are my two starting points, AC. So I run the B, A to B on the first type parameter and the C to D on the second parameter. So I go from an F of AC to an F of BD, which again, I would suggest you write out or go look up bifunctor. Uh, and that operation is called by map instead of just map. So it's very similar to regular map, except it takes two functions instead of one function. And this will be in the show notes. And I feel like if Absolutely. you're listening and you maybe just take a peek at the show notes, because it's actually not as complicated as it sounds if you followed up to now. Um, I think, because you're just doing the same thing twice that you were doing before. Yes, and you're doing it... Or, or it's very close to doing the same thing twice. And and again, uh, you can conceptually, you could create a, uh, a bimap that follows different rules, right? So you could have some sort of promise, some sort of async thing, or like a channel type thing that's parameterized by two types, and you could bimap over it so that you're converting both of those values as they're coming in, right? Both the type arguments... You're converting them. And so like as a very weird example, if you had a dictionary with uh, integers as keys and strings, like, like a list of names or whatever, and you said, you know what, I need to increment all my keys by one, and I want to two up all my names. Yep. Then by maps your friend. Then you could bifunctor that <laughs> and like pass it your list of, of you know, like the, the initial keys, and you're like, I need to increment these, increment these by one, and I want to up all my stuff, and so your bifunctor will take care of that for you. Yep. If the type is a bifunctor, you would use the bimap function, and that would do, that would do it. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. The bimap function does that for you. Okay. Yep. So instead of map, you have bimap because it's a bifunctor. 
Yeah, that comes up basically every day for me, so great. <laughs> it, It's a little more common than you might think uh, when you know to look for it and you have a name for it. That but, has um, been pretty much universally true, so I, I kid, but you're probably right that there's been times that I could have done this. So the, the last thing that we want to talk about, just real briefly, because we this definitely puts us into that, uh, not hand wavy, but down the type hole, <laughs> the type signature hole a bit, is this thing called a profunctor. And profunctors, um, we're just going to describe them with regards to functions themselves. So we talked about function composition. And so if you think of a function as a type that's parameterized by two other types, so it's an f of a, b kind of a thing, right? Uh, you could think of by mapping over your function, which would be to convert the input argument, the type of the input argument, and the type of the output argument. Uh, but you don't necessarily, you need to convert the type of the input argument before it gets to your function, and you want to convert the type of the output argument after it's been run through your function. So it's kind of like, you know, if you have an f of a, b, you need to do something to that a before it arrives at your function, right? Because you want to, like, process it before it gets to your function. So think of this as composing a function in front of your function, right? Like a filter, before it gets mm -hmm. to your function, right? And then you have a function that comes after, which could also be like a filter or, or further transformation. So a profunctor is like a bifunctor in that it's going to do something to both of those, both the A and the B, except it's going to operate on the A before it arrives at the function, and it's going to operate on the B after the function has run. And so usually we don't write it as f of AB as our function. We write it as f of BC. So they're kind of in the middle. So we'd have an original function, that's b to c. Let's say that b to c is our length function. So we have a function from string to int. We want to do something. We, we want to, that string to int function, it's already been written. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to like open up and write a new function. What we could do is we could use a profunctor. And what a profunctor will do is it will allow us to attach a function before the, the string to int happens. Let's say we have some sort of JSON um, encoder. So it takes JSON and encodes it and produces a string. So we could use encode as our first function. Like if you think of bimap again, it takes two sets of functions, right? Bimap, uh, sorry, uh, encode is our first one. And profunctor is just like a bimap, except that it runs that first one. It runs it before the internal function. Whatever our f is in our f of bc, it runs the sort of the A to B function. Because you want your type to match there for some reason. Like you don't have the right type. And so you're like, I your need to, get this, line up. Yep, I need to make my, my little key fit in the keyhole. Yep. And then we would have, again, just a normal like run this after kind of uh, function. That would be like our is even. And that would be the second part of our bimap. And that runs after. And this, this modified version of bimap where it runs the first function ahead of time is called dimap, D-I map. Um, not actually sure where that name came from. It's called dimap. And so what this allows you to do is take your regular function and basically put two functions around it. And you might say, okay, this is just normal composition. This is normal, uh, like just glue three functions together. That's just function composition. What's the big deal? And where this comes into play is when you do these abstractions where you have a type that represents a function, but is a concrete type. It's not just a regular function. It's a... Um, star or uh, Kleisley arrow or something like that. There's all these types that represent different aspects, but they're all just functions under the hood, but they represent different aspects of what it means to be a function. They're all narrower 
and more uh, specific than just a general function. And so in order to kind of do composition on the function that's inside those things, they implement profunctor for you to be able to do that. So if you hear profunctor, it's function composition within a structure. And that's, those structures are some of the more advanced topics in category theory that you're going to run into. And so I wouldn't worry about them at all. But if you've been hearing about profunctor and kind of wondering what it is, that's my attempt at explaining it to you. That that just definitely was at the periphery of what I could absorb. <laughs> and there's a good talk that we're going to link. Um, Phil Freeman, uh, the creator of PureScript, did a talk on profunctors. Uh, that if you have a bit of uh, static typing kind of experience and you can follow type signatures, like Haskell sty type, style type signatures, he does a very good job of walking through um, a lot of what it means to be a profunctor, and he, and he gives examples of those. All right. Awesome. We learned we did a lot it. tonight. We, so yes. This, <laughs> yes. Uh, this is a good example of where we're going, at least for a couple episodes. We will not stay, we won't go super far down this path, but we're at least going to hit. Uh, applicative functors and monads and then we can maybe take a breather and go on to some other stuff i think awesome we did it yeah in fact audience you did it go ahead give yourself a pat on the back um take a drink of your water or or whatever it is that you are consuming as you listen to the cast great job yeah i feel like we went on a great journey together uh, as a as a bonus uh, for anyone listening see if you can find the clip of dave saying screw haskell <laughs> that was uh, yes. that was maybe the highlight of the episode for me. Um, so that one stood out. That's gonna be your ringtone now when I call. Be like, <laughs> it may, Screw it may be. Screw <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.